2 Kings chapter 2, let's begin reading at verse 9, shall we? When they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. He said, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. As they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and struck the waters and said, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he also had struck the waters, they were divided here and there, and Elisha crossed over. Now, Lord, one more time I ask for your special touch upon me and upon this congregation. I ask that you give me clarity of thought and of speech so that I may communicate clearly your word. And I ask that you give all of us ears to hear what the Spirit will say in the midst of the preaching. I lift up to you other life-giving churches and I pray blessing upon them. And I pray particularly, Lord, for our loved ones that are not yet walking in right relationship with you. And especially for sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith. I ask that you will draw them to a place of repentance so that not one of them will be lost. I thank you for hearing our prayer. I thank you in advance for the answer that is on the way. I pray these things in the only name that matters, the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. It hadn't been that long ago, only three years. Every detail of that day, the sights, the smells, the sounds, the feelings, was permanently etched into his mind. It had begun like so many before, up early, hitched the oxen to the plow, out to the field, older brothers in front, him number 12 at the back of the line. By midday, he was hot, sweaty, caked with dust. It took everything he could manage just to keep his nose out of the dust enough so he could breathe. Out of nowhere, 
a weathered old man appeared, walked over to him, didn't say anything, just removed his outer mantle and placed it on the shoulders of the filthy plowman. What began as an ordinary day suddenly became extraordinary, and Elisha was called into the ministry as the prophet in training and protege of Elijah. For the next three years, everywhere Elijah went, there was Elisha, observing, listening, taking care of details of daily life so they didn't distract the prophet from his primary purpose. Yet in all that time, with all the marvelous miracles Elijah performed in those years, there's never any mention whatsoever of Elisha. He's there, but he's in the background, serving, helping, with no fanfare, doing everything he can to make life easier for this moody, temperamental prophet who had a nasty disposition at best. As chapter 2 of the book of 2 Kings opens, Elijah is coming to the end of his life and ministry. Before departing from this earth, he decides to make one last visit to some of the sites that were significant landmarks in the history of the nation of Israel. Everybody, including Elisha, seems to know this is his farewell tour, but no one wanted to accompany him except Elisha. I'm certain there was a fair amount of apprehension at the prospect of this spiritual giant being taken off the scene. Elijah, you remember, had single-handedly faced off against 450 priests of the false god Baal. He had been the one to call fire down from heaven, had ordered the execution of the pagan priest, had brought about a spiritual renewal and awakening to Israel in one afternoon. In the face of apostasy, Elijah was an immovable force for righteousness. Now that he was leaving, who would fill that role? Who would be able to stand against the evil that seemed unrelenting? Who would continue to be a light shining in the darkness? Who would rally the people and resist the influence of those that would seek to lead them astray from the worship of Jehovah? Now, what I want to suggest to you today is that the times in which we live are no less critical than were the times during which this story takes place. Every day, you are being pressured to cave in to the godless spirit of this age. Can I get a witness of somebody who says, that's true? There is a spiritual adversary who has targeted you for destruction. So how are you going to stand in the face of opposition? How will you keep going when discouragement sets in because you can't seem to catch a break and there doesn't seem to be any let up? How can you make it when the pressure of life and the grief of loss is overwhelming? Well, I want to tell you today that if you want to keep from being crushed, then you need a force on the inside that is greater than the pressure coming against you from the outside. 
This is a truth Elisha understood as he prepared to step out of the shadow of his mentor and into the spotlight of ministry. This story illustrates the steps that are required in order to access the power you need so that your faith will not fail when times are tough. If you'll pay attention to this, this is going to help somebody. I don't know who this is going to help, but it's going to help somebody today. First of all, I want you to see in this story a spiritual request. In verse 9, Elijah asked Elisha what it was that he wanted. He'd been following after him and doing all this and refused to be dissuaded. He said, what do you want? And Elisha responded, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. The reality is you cannot stand against the pressures of life in your own strength. The prophet had it right when he proclaimed in Zechariah 4.6, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's why Jesus instructed his followers in Luke 24 and 49, behold, I am sending forth the promise of my father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This was his promise in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is the power that enabled the apostle Paul to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 7 through 10, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way. Come on somebody, is that true? But not crushed perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Listen, let me tell you something. One of the best ways to have your own ministry is to serve the ministry of someone else. Be faithful to that ministry. Be committed to that ministry. Do everything you can to help that ministry succeed. What you make happen for somebody else, God will then make happen for you. This is what Elisha's doing this whole time. He's serving the prophet. And God then says, all right, now it's your time, buddy. This is the pattern we see from Elisha. But then, notice, when it was time for Elisha to step out on his own, he recognized he could not rely on the ministry power of the person he'd been serving. He needed his own power. He needed his own anointing. So the request that he made here is an interesting one. He says, I want a double portion of your spirit. Now, I know that I've read that for so many years and thinking he wanted twice as much as Elijah. That's not really what he's saying. It's not asking for twice as much power as Elijah had. Elisha was drawing on an Old Testament custom that is found in Deuteronomy 21 and 17. It is here that the firstborn, we find, is entitled to a double share of his father's estate, while the remaining heirs receive only a single share. So by asking for a double portion, Elisha is literally asking to be considered Elijah's son, to be considered the heir, the one who will carry on the ministry. It was a spiritual request for the same spirit that was active and working in Elijah. He needed the same spirit of faith, the same spirit of obedience, the same spirit of courage. And these are the very things you're going to need if you're 
going to resist the pressure of this age. These are the things you're going to need if you're going to live life as an overcomer. And the good news I have for you is that these are the very things that are available to you. James 4 and 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5 and 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be satisfied. So if you're going to resist the pressure of this age, it begins with a spiritual request. God, I've got to have your touch. I've got to have your power. I've got to have your enablement in my life. But then this story also illustrates that you're going to need a steadfast resolve. When you look at the events of this story, you see that there are any number of things that could have shaken Elisha's resolve. And if you're going to have your request granted for spiritual power, then you first of all have to make up your mind that you're not going to be stopped by opposition. In verse 3, we didn't read the the first part of the chapter, but let me back up to just tell you a little what's going on in the story. In verse 3, there are background information. Back up even further. (laughs) Background. It seems that in that day there were schools where they taught people how to operate in prophetic ministries. People that felt called, people that wanted to be involved. They were schools. We might, we might call them seminaries. They were being instructed. They were being helped along in their ministry. Well, in verse 3, they come to a place, and they're called the sons of the prophet. The sons of the prophets at Bethel tried to persuade Elisha to remain with them there at the school. And then in verse 5, the sons of the prophets at Jericho tried to do the same thing. There was opposition. In fact, later, later on, Elijah even tries to get him to stay. Why don't you just stay here, boy? There's opposition coming at him from every hand. And I want you to know that the moment you determine to be all that God has designed and called you to be, there is going to be opposition. Your best friends will try to dissuade. Your family will lament your decision. People that know you and love you and care for you will warn you that you're becoming too fanatical. They'll question your motives. They may even call you crazy. And your spiritual enemy will throw up every roadblock imaginable. He'll come against your mind with thoughts of how unworthy and undeserving you are. He'll accuse you. He'll tell you that as bad as you've been and as bad as you are, God could never use you. He'll create uncertainty in your finances. You can't afford to really sell out to the purposes of God. He'll create discord in your family. He'll attack your physical health. If you determine to follow Jesus and stand for righteousness and resist the pressure of this age, make no mistake about it, you will have opposition. There's always going to be a sideline critic. There will always be armchair quarterbacks who have never done anything but think they have the right to tell you how you ought to do it. Well, every time there was opposition, Elisha simply said, yes, I know Elijah's going to be taken from me, so what? Just hold hold your peace. Shut your mouth. Don't talk to me about that anymore. You're wasting your breath. I'm determined I'm going to stay with him until my request is granted. Well, not only are you going to have to determine that your resolve is not going to be stopped by opposition, you're going to have to also determine that your resolve isn't going to be distracted by opportunities. 
when you read it, the, you discover that the journey begins in a place called Gilgal. The name Gilgal means the reproach is rolled away. This was the first place the Israelites camped after crossing the Jordan River and entering the Promised Land. Israel, as you know, was selected by God as his chosen people. When God first entered into this covenant with Abraham, which is where, the, where it begins, he instructed him to circumcise all the males as a sign of the covenant relationship. During the time they were slaves in Egypt, this rite had been neglected. The first act upon entering the promised land was to once again observe this rite of circumcision of the males. In that act, the reproach of Egypt was rolled away and Israel reestablished their covenant commitment as the people of God. The beginning place for spiritual power is Gilgal, the place of covenant commitment. The place where you separate yourself from those things that are displeasing to the Lord. Those things that are in opposition to His word and His will. I want to tell you, if you're going to receive the power you need to live as an overcomer, you're going to have to stop living by convenience and start living by commitment. Somebody needs to have a made up mind that you're just going to belong to the Lord. You're not going back to the things of this world. You're not going back to the bondage of sin ever again. You're not going to continue to dabble in the things of this world where one day you're in and the next day you're out and you can't make up your mind which side of the fence you're going to be on. If you're going to receive the power you need to resist the pressure of this age, you cannot live off of the commitment of somebody else. You can't live off of mama's prayers. You can't live off of grandma's involvement. You can't make it on the pastor's determination. You have to take on the sign of separation for yourself. You have to have a made-up mind. You have to determine that no matter what comes or what goes, you're going to follow the Lord. So Elisha reaffirms his commitment there at Gilgal. But when the suggestion was made for him to stay there, he responded and said, absolutely not. I didn't start out just to get distracted by the good. I want the best. Somebody needs to hear that a whole lot better than I just preached it. Too many of you are settling for the good and you're missing out on the best. Stop settling for the good. Stop being distracted by the good. Go for the best. Elisha says, I'm in it for the long haul. I've got something very specific, specific in mind. I, I, have, I have a goal. I have an objective. And I'm not going to be deterred. So Elijah and Elisha left Gilgal, and they walked about 15 miles to Bethel. Bethel, you remember, is the place where Jacob stopped to spend the night when he left the land of Canaan to go to his relatives in Paddan Aram in search of a bride. Bethel means house of God. It was there, you remember, that Jacob used a stone for a pillow. And in the middle of the night, he had a dream about, about a ladder or, or a staircase set on the earth with its top reaching into heaven. And there were angels ascending and descending on this staircase. In this dream, the Lord spoke a word of promise and blessing to, to Jacob that was a confirmation of the blessing that had been spoken years before to his grandfather, Abraham. At the end of the dream, the Bible says in verse 16 of Genesis 28 that Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, 
surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. I, I, I didn't even realize where I was, but I'm now suddenly in the place where the presence of God. This is the house of God. He named it Bethel, house of God. See, at Bethel, you learn that if you're going to make it in this world, you not only need to make a personal commitment, but you're also going to have to spend time in the presence of the Lord. Bethel is a place of prayer. Bethel is a place of worship. Bethel is a place of divine encounter. Many years after that first encounter with God at Bethel, the Lord spoke to Jacob again. And in response to the word of the Lord, Jacob announced to the household, we're going back to Bethel. Well, when they got back there, Jacob had a fresh visitation, and he actually renamed the place El Bethel. See, before it had been simply called Bethel, the house of God. Now he calls it El Bethel, God of the house of God. And what Jacob discovered is that it's wonderful to have a landmark that represents the presence and the promise of God. But it isn't nearly as important to revisit the house of God as it is to have a fresh encounter with the God of the house. See, I'm telling you what makes this a church isn't the building or the budget or the bodies in the seats. What makes this a church isn't the good works we do in the community. What makes this a church isn't the resources we send around the world to fund missionaries and mission projects. This is only a church if the presence of the Lord is here. This is only a church if the spirit of the sovereign Lord is moving and active and alive in our midst. I got to tell you today, I don't want you to come and enjoy a good program. I want you to come and have a divine encounter with the living Lord of glory. That's what makes this a house of restoration. That's what makes this a place where broken are made whole. That's what makes this a place where healing waters flow. That's what makes this a place where mercy abounds. When you have a divine encounter, your life will never be the same. When you have a divine encounter, he'll strengthen your hand. He'll guide your steps. He'll supply your needs. He'll satisfy your longings. He'll restore the years that the enemy has stolen. He'll give you a future and a hope. That's what happens when you get in his presence in his house. Well, the sons of the prophets tried to get Elisha to remain with them at Bethel, but, but he wouldn't hear it. Even though he'd made a personal commitment, even though he had experienced the presence of God, he still didn't have everything he knew he needed. So Elijah and Elisha left Bethel, walked another 15 miles to Jericho. This is all in your Bible right before I got to the verses that we read as our text, okay? You do know that, right? Okay. I'm not just making this up, okay? I'm not just done. I just want you to see it's, it's right there. So they walked to Jericho. Jericho, you remember, was the site of Joshua's first victory in the promised land. It was also the site of the tragedy of Achan's sin. You can read all about that in Joshua's, the book of Joshua chapters 6 and 7. I don't have time to tell you all the story about that, but you read that. Jericho was the place of past victories. It was also the place where Israel learned that half obedience is disobedience. That name Jericho means place of fragrance. And in order to get maximum release of fragrant oil, the object has to be broken and crushed. Hear me very carefully, somebody. 
Don't despise the seasons when God is breaking you. Don't resist the crushing. When your will is broken and crushed to the place where you fully surrender to the will of God, that's what produces the most beautiful, most powerful anointing. This is what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus agonizes to the point, the Bible says his sweat became drops of blood. He was being broken. He was crushed. But when he fully surrendered, not my will, but your will be done, he cried. That's when the angels came and ministered to him. That's not when he got out of the struggle. Nothing changed on his path. But that's when he received the strength he needed to travel that path. That's so good, I wish I had written it in my sermon notes. That's when he received the strength he needed to accomplish the divine will and purpose for which he'd been sent. Here's what I know. You can't fake true anointing. We try it sometimes, but but you can't fake true anointing. I'm reminded of the woman in Mark chapter 14 who came to Bethany into the house of Simon the leper and anointed the Lord Jesus. Remember that story? In an extravagant display of devotion, she broke the alabaster vial and poured its costly contents over his head. And the reason fragrance filled the room was because something precious had been broken and crushed. Listen, when you see somebody operating in a powerful anointing, you don't know the cost of the oil in their alabaster box. You don't know what they had to go through to get to where they are. Having the power of God operating in your life to help you and help you stand when life is doing everything within its power to knock you down, it's only possible through the anointing of the Spirit of God. And that anointing only comes through being broken and crushed until it is God and God alone that is your source. Where you stop trying to figure it out and you stop trying to question why and you just simply say, here I am God, but by your grace I'll keep moving. I feel your touch right now, Holy Ghost. The sons of the prophets tried to get Elisha to remain at Jericho, but he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't hear of it. Commitment, presence, and brokenness would now lead him to follow Elijah another five miles walk to the Jordan River. Jordan means descender. The Jordan was a dividing line. It separated the land of promise from the wilderness. It was the Jordan that supernaturally divided as the barefoot priest bearing the ark of God stepped into the water. It's said that it was at the Jordan where the axe head started swimming. 
It was at the Jordan where Naaman would either die of leprosy or be miraculously healed by dipping seven times in its waters. Later on in the New Testament, the Jordan is where Jesus is baptized by John. Baptism, you remember, is a symbolism of death. We even talk about crossing chilly Jordan. And by the way, Jordan is chilly. Those of you that have been there know it's cold. Crossing chilly Jordan, and, and we talk about that as a way of talking about dying. Well, in baptism, you die to the old self. You bury the old self under the water, and then you are brought up, you are raised to new life in Jesus. That's the symbolism of baptism. To cross Jordan meant to enter into death. It was a formidable barrier that few would ever want to cross. Jordan is the dividing line between flesh and spirit. Jordan is the place where the supernatural becomes natural. Jordan represents the place where you either step into the supernatural or you sink in the flesh. Jordan is the place where you cast yourself totally upon God. Jordan is the place where you recognize that the victorious life is impossible without supernatural enablement. Standing is impossible without the internal force of the power of God being greater than the external pressure of the world. Well, when the men came to the Jordan, you remember, Elijah removes the mantle from his shoulders. He strikes the water with it, and a path opens through the Jordan for them to cross to the other side. Now, Elisha could have remained at any of those stops along the journey, but he has now accompanied his mentor as far as he can travel with him. His steadfast resolve has set up his spiritual request, and this leads to a serious response. The chariots and horses of fire appear. Elijah is taken up by a whirlwind. Elisha cried out, my father, don't miss this, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Again, it's that language of sonship, requesting the elder son's inheritance, my father. The conditions have been met. Elisha has focused on receiving the power he needs. He has refused to be dissuaded by opposition or opportunity. He has witnessed the miraculous translation. And now notice the end of verse 12 and on into 13. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Now, I can't tell you how long, how many years I read that story and just kind of passed over that section where it says he took his own clothes and tore them into pieces. It just, I, I just passed over. Okay, yeah. And I saw that only as, well, of course he did because that in that culture was a symbol of mourning and distress. That's not why he does it. He's not mourning. It's, more, it's way more than just an expression of grief. I mean, how would you grieve when you've just seen a chariot and horses of fire and, and, and the man of God taken up? I, I mean, I, I'd be doing a lot. Of, I'd be going, whoa, whoo, wow. I don't know that I'd be grieving at that point. I mean, Bleh. So it's more than an expression of grief. I want to tell you, in that act of tearing his own clothes, he's saying, I'm not leaving here the same way I came. I came as an apprenticed protege. I'm leaving as an anointed, appointed prophet. 
commitment and presence and brokenness and surrender has transformed my life. So what am I doing? I'm casting off the past. I'm not in mourning. I'm in transformation. I'm not going to try to do this work in my own abilities. I'm only going to move forward if I have an impartation of power. And, and the translation is somewhat misleading when it says Elisha took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him. That word literally means that the mantle was thrown down with a purpose. It was an intentional act. You saw me, you cried out to me, you want to be my, my firstborn, my, my son of inheritance. Here it is, son. And this is the same mantle that was thrown over the shoulders of Elisha when Elijah first called him that day when he was out plowing in the field. It was the mantle that represents Elijah's anointing and his spiritual power. So with that mantle in hand, Elisha goes to the bank of the Jordan. I want you to just get a picture of him in your mind, would you? Get a picture of this guy. He's, he's younger than Elijah. Elijah was... was wild and woolly and hairy and he's bald you can read that in your bible it's right it's there am i does anybody know your bible do you you do know elisha was bald right because the kids came and mocked him for being bald and he cursed them and the bears came out and ate the kids up so be careful how you talk about bald people <laughs> just say it just see this see elisha and he takes that mantle, and he kind of, I see him as he folds it over one time. And he holds it up, and he calls out, where is the Lord God of Elijah? I have the mantle. Do I also have the spiritual power represented by the mantle? He struck the water, and the waters parted. And the Bible says, and I'm, I'm going to finish up with this. The Bible then says in verse 15, that the sons of the prophets who were looking on from a distance, <laughs> they didn't want to get too close to this. That's the way with a lot of people. They want to see God's power, but they don't want to experience it. They don't want to get too close to it. It's good for you to have it, but, I, but no, no. I, uh, there's a, man, I, I, can't, I can't preach that because I'm, I'm, I'm already over time. All right. But the sons looking from a distance saw the waters part, and here's what they said. The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. Now, I want to suggest to you today that the spiritual power you need to be able to stand against the pressure of this age, the spiritual power you need to overcome no matter how great the odds, the spiritual power you need to make it through the darkest night is available to you when you make the commitment, when you enter his presence, when you're broken, and when you're fully surrendered. When nothing else will satisfy, God will impart supernatural power to your life. And here's another thing you need to know about that. You won't have to make a formal announcement for everybody around you to know that God's Spirit is at work in your life. You're not going to have to wear a big button on your chest that says, I'm anointed with spiritual power. They'll know. Because people looking at your life, they'll, they'll know. Because you'll walk onto your job Monday morning and suddenly you'll have a confidence you never had before. And when you encounter obstacles, you'll have a cool calmness under pressure and you'll be able to look at it and look at people and say, okay, we're going to do this and now we're going to do this and now I'm going to take care of this and it'll all just fall into place. 
and the people around you will see it, and they'll say, I don't know how that happened. And they'll look at you, and they'll see all the stuff that's coming against you, and they'll say, I don't know how you're able to stand against the kind of pressure you're under. Well, I'll tell you how this happened. I'll tell you how you stand. It's because there's an impartation of spiritual power into your life. That's how you do it. They won't know what to call it, but they'll see its effect. I'm talking about something being different in your life from the way you've been before. I'm talking about a transformation. I'm talking about a new peace and purpose in your family, in your home. I'm talking about you having a boldness to talk to people about the word of the Lord. Up until now, you've, you've, you've tried to talk to them, but they've been resistant. But suddenly, when you're filled with the spirit of God and the power of God, they're receptive to the words you say. I'm talking about having an authority to push back evil and bring light and hope to a dark place. I'm talking about an ability to stand and to move forward and to keep pressing on in spite of the obstacles and in spite of the pressure. This is the spiritual power that comes with the garment of impartation I'm preaching about. It's that force on the inside that is greater than the pressure that is being applied on the outside. This can be yours. It doesn't come easy. It doesn't come cheap. But when you take the steps and go through the process, when you refuse to settle for less, that's when the power comes. That's when the power comes. Come help me, Pastor Larry, and shut this down. Before I came to this service today, my prayer was that the Lord would place within your heart a desire for something more. I prayed that you would have a holy discontent with the status quo. I prayed that he would put within you a longing for something greater than what you currently have. I prayed that he would then open your eyes to the possibilities that can be yours when you passionately pursue him. So I just want to know if I'm preaching to anybody who will be that person who refuses to give up until you receive the impartation of divine power that I've been preaching about today. I'm not going to ask anybody to come forward. I'm not going to lay hands on anybody. Not that I'm opposed to laying hands on people or having people come forward. It's just not the way I believe the Lord wants me to operate right now. But if God has placed in your heart, as I've been preaching, if there's been this tugging, this, this, this nudging, this prodding, I, I need what pastor's preaching about. If I'm going to face what I'm facing, I, I, I need that kind of supernatural ability that he says I can have, and I want it today. This probably isn't for everybody, but it's going to be for somebody. And if you want it, that's your desire, your heart's desire. I'm just going to ask you right where you are if you'll just stand. Thank you. Father, I especially want to now pray for these people who are standing. You have told us in your word that if we ask, we would receive. You've said that if we hungered and thirst for righteousness, we'd be satisfied. You would fill us. 
Lord, we recognize that we need a strength and a power that is way beyond ourselves to produce. We've got to have your help. We've got to have your ability. I don't know what it's going to look like, and I don't know what it means for every one of these people who are standing and for those that are agreeing in this prayer online. I don't, I don't know what it means for all of them, but you know, Lord. And you have said that you would satisfy hungry hearts. So now I'm praying that you will release an impartation of supernatural power and ability into the lives of the people who are standing right now and receiving this prayer. I'm not asking you for a sign. I'm not asking you for a feeling. I'm asking you to simply confirm your word. Lord, we may not feel anything right now, but I'm praying that this afternoon and tonight and tomorrow and the day after and next week and the week after that and the week after that, on and on and on, we will begin to see the evidence that your divine life is in us and is flowing through us so that your kingdom is established and your kingdom is increased through what you're going to do through us. Father, I pray that because of your spirit that is alive and active in the lives of these people now through the impartation of your word and your power that comes by your grace, I'm praying that every opposition, every enemy, every, pe- every part of darkness that comes against them will be vanquished by the light of the glory of your presence that is radiating from their lives. Ah. Oh. In the name of Jesus, I, I, I just felt somebody just tapped into that. Somebody Somebody just grabbed that right there. God's doing that in your life right now. In the name of Jesus, let there be a release of divine power flowing through the lives of these people. And I thank you for that. All over this house, would you just lift your hands in thanksgiving to the Lord for his promise and for his presence today. Somebody's facing something that you you know it's coming this week. And you don't you don't know how you're gonna how you're gonna deal with it. I'm telling you, you release it to the Lord, and you're not gonna have to deal with it. Because the Lord will deal with it. When you get there, you're gonna find that He's already working it out. Oh. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. 
Now, everybody, please stand together. Pastor, lead us in that. I want us to make this our prayer. More of you. Sing it as your prayer to the Lord today, this morning. More of you.